Luke chapter 11, starting from verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up anything and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. You can, uh, you can grab a seat. And uh, as you uh, are sitting, um, you can turn in, uh, in your bulletin to our Gospel reading. Um, that's the one that's Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Or if you have a Bible, you can turn there as well. This uh, passage that we are uh, going to look at is all about prayer. So it's, it's a morning prayer service. Our text is about prayer. Uh, in a moment, we're going to pray. Uh, so it kind of fits together. And in that theme, I'm going to pray as we get started. So uh, please bow your head with me. Our Father, uh, we uh, come before you. Uh, we're thankful for your son, Jesus, we thank you for your word, um, and we're thankful for your Holy Spirit. And as our passage uh, encourages us to, to pray this morning is to, uh, to ask you to send your Holy Spirit, and it is your pleasure to give us your Holy Spirit. So, so we ask that, and we ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit to um, show us um, what is in your word, um, to guide our hearts to you, um, to help us to see Jesus more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our passage this morning starts off with a question. Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray. Have you ever thought of prayer as something that you need to learn how to do? Or do you even think about prayer that much? Some of us will immediately think about the morning or evening prayer services that we have here in the Anglican tradition such as morning prayer that we're taking part in this morning. Or maybe you think about prayer as a, a blessing that you say at mealtime. Um, or maybe you think about prayer just as a superstition um, or a last resort. But regardless of whether you are a person to whom prayer comes easy uh, or you're a person who avoids prayer, it seems prayer is something that we need instruction in. So that's what we're looking into this morning. How does Jesus teach us how to pray? In Luke 11, verse 1, we find Jesus off somewhere with his disciples. And as he often does, Jesus is praying when one of these disciples comes up to him and asks him, 
teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So this is a reference to John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, uh, who had gathered some followers in anticipation of Jesus's arrival. And a common practice at that time for many religious leaders was to teach the disciples that they'd gathered around them a prayer, like a, a very specific prayer. And so this is what Jesus does. Um, and so he responds in verse two with these words. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, this is an abbreviated version of what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer that uh, we're more used to that. It's found in Matthew's gospel. Um, we're more familiar with that, that other version of the Lord's Prayer because that's what we use in, in our liturgy. So we're actually going to pray that the Matthew version of the Lord's Prayer in a little bit. Um, but we'll get into the specifics of this prayer as it's found in Luke. It's a little bit different. Um, we'll get into that in a few minutes. But first, we need to take a look at what follows, um, because what follows this in Luke's text is an explanation of the prayer. So Jesus uh, immediately continues his teaching on prayer by launching into a parable in verse 5. Um, now, a parable is basically a way of teaching that, in a sense, it enhances what's already present in a person. So if, if you're someone who's resistant to Jesus, um, a parable will actually reinforce that and cause more confusion. But if you accept that Jesus is God and is called to follow him as a disciple, or if you're interested, or if you're seeking, um, the parable will foster growth and understanding and kind of lure you in. So, so this parable, while short, um, it can actually get quite confusing, and there's actually a long history of interpreting this parable in different ways. So this is where we, we really have to dig in and think about it. So I invite you to do that with me this morning. Verses 5 to 7 are actually one long sentence in the original Greek, and this is important because these verses form one long question. And it's actually a rhetorical question. We often miss the force of this question because we live in a vastly different culture here in North America than that of the, the biblical world in the first century when, when Jesus was speaking these words. So uh, let's, let's look at verses five to seven. They read, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine's arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, in this cult, in our culture, uh, we might actually be thinking, you know, if I did this to a friend, show up at midnight asking for food so that I could entertain a guest, that friend would probably do exactly what the man in bed here does. Right? He'll say, it's late. You know, your request is unreasonable. Uh, the kids are asleep. I got to go to work early. You're on your own. You know, get out of here. You know, there's got to be some sort of app like Seamless or Grubhub. Go order something online. Um, just go away. I, I need to sleep. And we might think that, you know, our friend would be completely within his rights to just brush us off. But in Jesus's culture, what is at stake here is the honor of the man who's already in bed. The person you're imposing on. 
And so it's an honor-shame culture. Um, this is mostly foreign to us in the Western world, but for those of you who've grown up in, in maybe the Middle East or in Asia or have had experience there, um, or maybe you have parents who've immigrated from there, um, it's still a very real part of culture. And so in this sort of culture, a hospitality is an unwritten law. And so for your friend to refuse to help you would bring shame upon them. And it, perhaps it would even bring shame upon the entire family or the whole village. So the reaction to Jesus's rhetorical question here would be an unabashed, no, it's unthinkable that anyone would respond in this manner. Nobody would have a friend who would turn them away in a situation like this. Now, it's the next sentence, verse eight, um, where this honor-shame dynamic can cause us great confusion. And in fact, uh, it's caused much confusion throughout the history of interpreting this parable. Uh, and we can see this actually in, in the vastly different ways that one word has been translated in our various English Bible translations. So, so the, the, the text of Luke is written in Greek, and uh, in all the different Bible translations that we have in English, it's kind of all over the place. So verse 8 in the English Standard Version, which is what we, we have in, in, our in our bulletin this morning, says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, it's kind of confusing because it's like, who's the he? Like, which he? What, what's going on here? And then there's actually a footnote on the word impudence. Um, the footnote says that an alternate meaning to translate the, the Greek would be persistence. So we got impudence, we got persistence. Um, another translation, the New, New International Version, translates the word as boldness because of his boldness. Uh, the King James Version um, has the word importunity, which is kind of like impudence. Uh, the New American Standard Version suggests shamelessness is an option. And the New Living Translation is, is kind of similar to that. It says shameless persistence. So we got a whole range of what, like, what, what, what's going on? What, what's the right word? So um, there's uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, John Mason. Um, he's um, one of the ministers who helped uh, plant Emmanuel um, uh, way back, and uh, he's visited us before. He's got, he's got a commentary on Luke that I found to be actually really helpful. Um, and he, he basically says, you know, most English translations are not actually helpful here for us to grasp what's going on. Um, he and many other scholars uh, suggest, and, and this, is, this is where I think it makes the most sense. They suggest that the best translation of the word here is sense of shame. Now this draws on the root meaning of the word um, of avoidance of shame that, that's kind of trying to be brought out in some of our translations. But I think this translation makes the best sense of our passage given the honor, shame, cultural situation we're dealing with, as well as the greater context of our passage. So now that you're, you're really confused and it's like, okay, what, what, what's going on? Um, let me try to draw it together, all right? Um, it is unthinkable that the man in bed would ignore the request for help. So then verse eight would then read, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his sense of shame, that is the man in bed's sense of shame, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So one further point um, that I think will help us make sense of this for, for us uh, Westerners. In an honor-shame culture, to be put into a situation where you have a sense of shame imposed on you 
It's not a negative thing. It's just the way culture works. So it becomes a negative thing if in that situation you fail to do what is required. And then you are shamed by those around you. So a sense of shame and being shamed are very different things. And so appealing to someone's sense of shame is actually a way of showing honor to that person. So it's hard to grasp for those uh, of us who are primarily formed in an individualistic culture where autonomy and uniqueness are valued. But in the culture of Jesus's day, group identity and expectations were more primary in shaping how people interact. What you do is formed more by the people around you through external motivation than by your own internal motivation. So doing things to not bring shame on myself or my family or my village is more important than doing things because I think it's the right thing to do. I knew a couple uh, when I was studying, uh, I was in Vancouver in Canada. I knew this couple and, and he was from the United States and she was from China. And so they fell in love and they started dating. And soon the, the time came for him to meet her parents. Um, but before this meeting, she was prepared. She gave, gave him a pop quiz. And so she asked him, what is an appropriate gift to bring when meeting the parents? Should it be A, a bouquet of chrysanthemums, B, black mushrooms, or C, a book? Okay, so what, what, what do you think? I'll, I'll throw this out. We can be interactive this morning. What do you think? A bouquet of chrysanthemums, black mushrooms, or a book? We hear a book. I hear mushrooms. Sorry? A, A, yeah. Okay, we're all over the place, right? Um, here's, here's where we go. Um, he naturally gravitated towards a bouquet of flowers, right? That's something we do here. Um, flowers are what you, you bring. The, the problem, well, fortunately, it was only a test because the problem is chrysanthemums are a flower only given to the dead in traditional Chinese culture, right? That's probably offensive. It's like, hey, um, nice to meet you. I love your daughter. I wish you were dead. Um, not a good first impression, right? Uh, so a gift of mushrooms would actually be the far more appropriate gift. But it's a practice that's dictated by the group, by the culture. And so it's important to know the cultural norms when seeking to make a proper impression. And so in our passage, it's the cultural norms that are dictating the, honor, the expected honorable actions of the man being imposed on. So the parable ends here with the man in bed rising to get some bread. It's an honorable act. And we're left with a picture of a fairly routine honor-shame interaction that people in that culture would connect with. But this parable is actually a description of God. And this is drawing out the meaning of the first line of Jesus's prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed in verse two carries a sense of holiness and honor. And one way to think of the phrase is, um, as uh, some translations put it, Father, your name be honored as holy. So what Jesus is doing, he's teaching us how to approach God when we pray. And it's quite revolutionary. Addressing God as Father was not done before this. The word here is a rather intimate familial term. Abba, Father. Yet the term also holds on to this idea of honor. 
And so this is reinforced by saying, your name be honored as holy. So when we address God as Father, hallowed be your name, we're like children appealing to God's sense of shame. We're asking God to be true to who he is. We're not questioning who he is. We're not simply telling him something that he already knows. We're simply acknowledging who God is in a way that emphasizes what he is faithful to do, knowing that he will act because his honor is at stake. So we're actually following a pattern of addressing God in the Old Testament, when people would appeal to God's character when they want something or when they're interacting with him. In Psalm 2511 of David, who wrote the Psalm, he says, for the sake of your name, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now, I don't know what uh, David did at that time. Um, He needed to seek God's pardon. I think David did a lot of things where he needed to seek God's pardon. But the entire psalm is an appeal to God's sense of shame. David appeals to God's goodness and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's knocking on God's door, knowing full well who's on the other side, knowing that God will act because of who God is. And again, we see this in our passage in Luke. After the parable, Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So ask, seek, knock. This is prayer. But it's not selfish prayer. It's prayer guided by who God is. We don't have to beg and plead. It's confident prayer. It's bold prayer. And so then we're hit with uh, some more rhetorical questions here. right? What father, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? right? Of course, no good father would do that. In fact, there's a number of really bad fathers who probably wouldn't even do that. God, however, is a good father. One who, because of who he is, gracious, kind, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, willing and able to provide for our daily bread. Because of this, he will give us what we need when we ask. In fact, he's willing to give us even more. Verse 13 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this reference to the Holy Spirit seems to come out of nowhere, but I think it fits well with the thrust of our passage. The Holy Spirit is a prominent theme throughout the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and those two books go together. God's promised presence with us, God dwelling with humanity, right? This focus on the Holy Spirit gives us a Trinitarian twist to our passage. There's an early church father, um, Origen, uh, from Africa. He once said, the discussion of prayer is so great that it requires the father to reveal it, his firstborn word, Jesus, to teach it, and the spirit to enable us to think and speak rightly of so great a subject. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance of eternal life, according to Ephesians 1.14. It's by the Holy Spirit's 
presence in us that we are given a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. And in our passage, it is actually God's presence with us by the Holy Spirit that is the evidence given to us that God will indeed care for all of our needs. Ask, seek, knock. How do we know God hears? Well, he gives us his spirit. He gives us himself. And Romans 8.15 tells us that it is by the Holy Spirit that we have received adoption into sonship, and by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Right? This again thrusts us back into the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Father, Abba, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. We trust that Jesus will return to usher in the new heavens and the new earth when he, where he will reign forever and ever. That's God's kingdom. God's honor depends on this. So we're bold to ask, your kingdom come. Right? We want to see God's rule over God's people in God's place fully realized. We want to see Jesus return. But we also want to see God's kingdom rule in our own lives. There, there's a personal aspect to this right here, right now. James Houston, um, he's the founding principal of Regent College where I studied in Vancouver. He says this um, about this prayer. He says, because the door of prayer is also the door into our hearts, we need to pray this prayer constantly. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come becomes the prayer, come into my heart, into the core of my being. It is this prayer which overcomes our alienation and despair, our loss of assurance and our need for his power to overcome the world inside us. We pray this prayer in the words of Paul without ceasing. So we become permanently conscious of the Father's rule over us. And and maybe this is what what you need to, to take away this morning, right? Come into my heart. That's the invitation. We're asking God to come into our lives. And whether it's the first time we've done this or or the hundredth time, this is a prayer that we need. So Jesus's prayer moves on. Give us each day our daily bread. If we haven't yielded our lives to the kingdom of heaven, to, to the Father's rule in our hearts, we will be ruled by alienation and despair at a deep level inside us. There's another uh, early church father, um, also from Africa, uh, named Augustine of Hippo. And he's famous uh, for saying this about God. You may have heard it. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Left unchecked, this restlessness and despair will manifest itself in our daily lives. It shows up in what takes priority in our lives and turns good things into idols, into replacement gods that separate us from God. Right? For most people, we want to provide our own daily bread. Independence is a hallmark of having made it in the world. And so to work becomes a means of self-dependence and provision um, rather than a good gift given to us through which we witness to the reality of God's kingdom rule. Yet Jesus implores us to ask the Father to supply our daily bread. This can be our physical needs. It can also refer to our spiritual needs. But either way, God sustains us physically and spiritually each day. It's a prayer for God's daily provision. 
The prayer moves on. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The asking is a repeated theme in our parable, and it defines most of the prayer that Jesus gives us. We ask for our daily bread to be provided. We ask for forgiveness of sins. And this is an ongoing thing in the life of a follower of Jesus. We're relational beings. We're made to be in relationship with God. We're made to be in relationship with other people. This is the way things were meant to be. And here our parable sheds light on the ongoing repentance of a Christian. The constant turning our faces toward God. Everyone who asks receives. Forgiveness is made available because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Um, That sacrifice has opened up the way for us to approach God. We just have to ask. And his disposition towards us is that he wants to forgive us. But what's holding us back? The foretaste of the kingdom of God that the church witnesses to is experienced also in the acts of forgiveness we extend to each other. Right, God in right relationship with us, people in right relationship to each other. All of this is anchored by who God is. And so finally we pray, and lead us not into temptation. This, in a sense, is a throwback to the beginning of the prayer. It's another appeal to God's honor. Really, all these requests are. They are all a cry for God to ensure that his name is uplifted and worshipped when people see how he ushers in his kingdom, how he provides for the daily needs of his people, how he graciously forgives sin. And now we see an appeal to God's character in not leading us into temptation. This is an expression of trust. Surely, Father, you would not betray your goodness, your jealous love for your people, by leading us into temptation. We're weak people. We sin. And so, in our passage this morning, Jesus teaches us how to pray. But even more than that, he reveals how our conception of who God is will steer the direction of our prayers. God wants us to give, him, give us himself. God wants to give us himself. And in giving us himself, giving us the Holy Spirit, he reveals that he is faithful to provide for us and able to care for us. All we need to do is ask, seek, and knock, and God will come through for us. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.